everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and today's episode is on social and emotional learning, also known as SEL for short. We'll be discussing what SEL is, the current evidence around it, and how students, parents, and teachers can use it to gain the knowledge to make positive changes in their life. Our wonderful guest speaker today is Nick Kaysman-Smith. Nick is the executive director and one of the founders at the Institute of Social and Emotional Learning in the U.S. and a doctoral researcher at the University of Bristol. He is an experienced and committed social entrepreneur with a passion for helping and improving social and emotional well-being for adults, young people, and communities as a whole. I'm super excited to speak with him today. Nick, a very big and warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, You bet. Thank you so much for having me. I love the work you're doing and uh, I'm very excited to be part of it today. Oh, me too. I'm very excited and thank you for your words. So before we dive into this wonderful topic, I thought we'd actually introduce the basic definition of what SEL is and what it consists of. So what do we mean when we say social and emotional learning? It's such a great question. And even though it's a simple question, um, it's a it's an area where there is sometimes misunderstanding. So it's it's a great place to start. For me, SEL at its core is about human flourishing. It's a process. I like to think of it as a dynamic process, a lifelong process through which we all acquire and apply knowledge, skills, uh, and mindsets to really thrive in our lives. If you break down Um, Beyond that sort of high-level definition, um, there are some ingredients, some components of social and emotional learning that might help us all understand a little more what it is and also what it isn't. So uh, first off, I think we could think of SEL being about helping um, everybody um, understand and manage their own emotions. There's a phrase in neuroscience that says, if you want to tame it, you need to name it. Um, And when we think about that from our emotional perspective, we need to be able to understand and name our emotions um, and know where they are in our bodies, how we feel them, in order to then take the next step and manage them and choose how those emotions drive our actions. The other part of of SEL as a good starting point is around our own self-awareness of our identities, how we have multiple identities, how those identities are informed by our family, our culture, where we grow up, where we live, um, and how those identities sort of come together to create who we are. So if you think about those two sort of initial starting points, they are both about the intrapersonal within ourselves, the, the elements of SEL that are about our own internal workings. The other part of social emotional learning relates to how we live in relationship and in community with others. So in that context, you might want to think about um, how we take uh, an understanding and build empathy for each other. So how I might understand that uh, someone else's perspective on the world, their lived experience is very different to mine, and I could still understand it and feel connection to it and have empathy for that person. We might go beyond that even a step further in social emotional learning and think about once we're building that sense of empathy, how does that help us build positive relationships with each other? Um, in school, in our relationships personally, and in the place of work as well. And really all of those contexts are where SEL can be seen as uh, coming alive. So just as we think about positive relationships and how to build those working relationships, personal relationships, it's also important to think about what do we do when relationships um, find difficulties or go through hard patches. And so we like to think of Um, our work in SEL also being about conflict resolution and relationship repair. So we're thinking both proactively and also responsively about how we nurture our interpersonal connections. So if you think about that intra piece, about our own emotions, our own identities, plus the inter elements of social emotional learning, all of that really comes together to empower all of us to make good decisions, uh, responsible, caring decisions uh, for ourselves our own decisions and choices about our own lives, about how we interact with others. And I think importantly, you know, how we interact with the world and the environment around us. So SEL at its core, I say, is about human flourishing. When we think about it in education, um, it is an educational approach. I know we're going to come on to that in a minute, but SEL lives much more than that. It is a lifelong process. That's kind of a long, (laughs) quite a long definition of what SEL is, but a, a short kind of visual definition Uh, And if we were together in person, I could draw a little diagram at this point. 
but is to say that um, you can think of SEO simplicity uh, as a triangle diagram. Imagine drawing like a pretty conventional diagram of a triangle. The bottom left corner, you might want to put the word feelings. And that line across the bottom goes to the bottom right-hand corner where we're going to have the word um, action. If you think for a moment about the way in which humans have evolved and the way in which um, a lot of our feelings come into us, it often drives us straight towards um, an action or a decision. Um, I use a really crude example of driving. And sometimes when we're driving, something frustrating happens on the roads. And the feeling that comes up of annoyance or frustration or irritation might drive us straight towards an action, which might be to say something out loud, maybe loudly, or it might be to, um, you know, uh, bib on the horn of our car. What we are trying to think about SEL being is passing those feelings that are on the bottom left side of your triangle up to the top of the triangle where we're going to put the word thoughts so that as we are feeling things, we're going to pass them through our thoughts, engage with them, and then choose our action really thoughtfully, intentionally. So it's a very simple way of thinking about social emotional learning, but it really is at the core of an idea of agency. And if we can build these skills for children, for all of us, we are empowering ourselves with the ability to choose how we respond to the emotions that come through our bodies and our minds. And I think that's at the core as a very simple way of saying um, SEL is about finding that sense of agency that allows us to flourish. So long definition, short definition, uh, little diagram. I hope that made it uh, make sense a little more. Absolutely. I, I do have to say that was so beautifully said and hands down one of the best definitions of SEL that I've ever heard. And we got three versions of it. So I don't think any of us can complain here. But no, I think what's very interesting is how you mentioned it's a lifelong process. And I think dealing with certain emotions and feelings and thoughts and behaviors is something that is ever evolving and ever changing. So that's that's a very important point that it's you know never going to be set in stone, we are forever going to be growing and, and learning. And, and it also reminds me of um, cognitive behavioral therapy. It essentially follows the exact same diagram that you were just describing of like how to change, you know, your feelings or your thoughts and your actions, like how those three are intertwined and then focusing on one or changing one can help with the other. So um, I just I just found that to be a very interesting comparison. Absolutely. And I think just the um, point you make about the lifelong learning piece, um, I think for many of us as adults, we might think of this as, you know, we could teach this in school and, you know, they'll they'll learn it there. What the research is very clear about and the reality of how SEL works is that you're never done learning SEL. You, you kind of never graduate from this as a class. It's something that, you know, uh, we're all working on all the time. And um, SEL for adults is just as important as it is for kids. And our hope in doing this work in the world is that we can see it as a kind of lifelong learning, really, that we can all take part in. And that as we're growing up, things will change. We'll need different skills or different SEL tools to apply to our lives and that we will always can, you know, continue to learn. It's also probably helpful to think about SEL being something that it's OK that you don't always get right um, and that making mistakes and uh, not getting your uh, relationships completely right or uh, not always making the best decisions is all part of that learning journey. And that's what probably makes it so powerful is that it's um, something we can keep coming back to learning, practicing, relearning, repracticing. Um, and it's, yeah, as I said, it's something we're never done with. Absolutely. We're definitely going to get into SEL for like adults as well, because a lot of the times when you like, even when you Google SEL, it's always more focused on schools, right? But I think what's beautiful about your work is that it's not only focusing on um, kids, it's SEL also for teachers and parents. So i um, very excited to get into that. But speaking a little bit about your work, which I think is so impressive, I would love to hear a little bit more on that. What sparked your interest with um, SEL? And perhaps you can share a little bit about your journey with it so far. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to because, um, you know, I, I grew up in uh, the UK mostly and this was not something that I had when I was at school. Um, in fact, I would say quite a lot of uh, the education that many people of my generation received didn't engage with SEL in really any way at all. So um, I think it's, yeah, it's uh, something I'm very happy to share. I think the first time I really came across the an issue that I 
now have come to learn that SEL can address um, was when I was having my, it was my very first teaching job um, in central London. I was straight out of uh, teacher training. I did the Teach First program here in the UK um, back in 2003. Um, I was 23 years old. I had very, uh, what I thought was a good knowledge of my subject area as a secondary school teacher. Um, and I had an amazing mentor uh, as, a, as a young teacher in, in that school. Um, and on many ways, it was a really terrific place. Uh, it was an all-girls school, and um, it was a terrific place to, to learn my craft. But what I learned and realized over those first few years is that um, there was something that was missing. I saw these wonderful young uh, people uh, growing. They were doing pretty well academically, but they weren't necessarily thriving in ways that I sort of intuitively felt that they should be or could be. Um, and it felt to me, looking at the school system in the UK, that it didn't really promote well-being as, as a sort of significant part of what children should be focusing on in their learning. Um, and as a young teacher, I certainly felt really kind of ill-prepared to support that side of my students' development. So I kind of came out of those years of teaching, feeling like there must be a better way to design or to do school and to nurture young hearts and young minds. Um, I didn't even know what I was looking for other than hope that somewhere in the world, folks might be doing something different or more innovative. And I wanted to learn that. So I was really fortunate at that point to be offered a place to go to Stanford University in California um, with my research focusing on a global perspective of how different countries, different systems were teaching well-being or prioritizing well-being for kids. Um, and I had the chance to do research looking at, at countries all around the world that, that approach this differently. And during that time at Stanford, I kind of had two pretty formative experiences that really um, still today feel like the aha moments for me. Um, the first of which was I took a class with Dr. Denise Pope. Um, she is an amazing researcher, co-founder of the Stanford program called Challenge Success. And her work really spoke to me. She had tracked and worked with uh, teenagers in schools in California, really looking at how the school system was part of the reason so many students were feeling significant levels of stress, not sleeping well, um, not looking after their own emotional and social and physical well-being. And her research um, really spoke to the issues I had seen. And I hadn't really ever seen that uh, sort of connection with uh, the world of research uh, to, up until that point. So her sort of mentorship and, and inspiration was, was one of those aha moments. The second aha moment is that I was introduced to a school just outside of San Francisco called the Nueva School. And the Nueva School had an approach to teaching and learning that they called SEL. And I was lucky enough to go visit this school a couple of times and get to know the approach that they had. And what's really inspiring is that when the school was founded, they had social emotional learning as one of the kind of core uh, pillars of the school's design, one of the founding principles. And what really impressed me and kind of struck me was that SEL at the school wasn't only an approach, it was actually also a class. So once a week, every kid in the school had an SEL class. And it was during these classes that all of those skills I mentioned in that definition at the beginning were sort of explicitly taught. And this was, this was just remarkable to me and so different from anything I'd seen elsewhere. So kind of coming out of those two big experiences, finding the research base, and then seeing like in classroom practice, I was lucky enough to get hired um, by the Noeva School as an SEL specialist in the middle school. So I was working with, you know, uh, preteens and teenagers um, and had the chance to teach this uh, work there for many years uh, following that. So that's sort of how, how I got started. Um, and it was a lot of uh, being in the right place at the right time, um, I think. So fast forward a few years and um, I was teaching at the school with some amazing colleagues. Um, I want to mention them by name because they are sort of part of this very important journey. Uh, Janice Tobin, who had been teaching the SEL program at Noeva for uh, many, many years. Um, Rush Saberston Frank, who was my sort of counterpart in the middle school, uh, my co-teacher, and Elizabeth McLeod, who um, again was an SEL specialist in the younger grades. And the four of us were this team um, of specialists. And because the school had this wonderful reputation uh, for being deeply committed to this work. We often uh, welcomed visitors from around the world to come to our classroom and they wanted to know uh, what we were doing. All of that uh, led over the 
the years um, up until about 2009, where my colleagues and I thought we could try and share our, our work and what we were doing more intentionally um, with other schools and other educators. And that's when we started um, this organization, the Institute for Social Emotional Learning back in 2009. And here we are 13 years later, uh, we've worked with over 10,000 teachers around the world, um, over a thousand schools, um, just trying to share what what we have learned and what the research says and some really good practices for supporting SEL um, for kids, uh, for teachers and for parents. So that's a, a little of the journey. Um, and I would just say that the, the work of SEL has come so far as a movement in those years. Uh, and it just feels a huge privilege to have been um, a small part of it. Wow. Honestly, I, I have goosebumps when, when you were sharing your story. And I don't think it's luck. I think it's fate. I think maybe you were destined to do this. Um, and I think from your passion, it, it really shows that perhaps this is exactly what you were meant to do. So thank you for sharing this. And I'm very excited to now speak a little bit more about the evidence and the shift that's been happening um, since. So let's actually talk about the why then. We've spoken about what it is and, of course, the certain like aspects of it. But what is some of the evidence behind this work and why is social and emotional learning important? Yeah, it's um, it's an area where we've come so, so far. Um, if we rewind even just the 13 years to when we started the Institute for SEL, um, the evidence base for this work was was growing. It was it was embryonic, you might say, but it was pretty minimal. Um, and a lot of the folks who were coming to ask us about this work just knew because of the evidence they saw in their classrooms that this was important. And if you ask teachers even, you know, 50, 100 years ago, they know that at the core of what helps education be successful is a relationship with students and having that sense of connection with them. Um, so we knew that intuitively. But yes, the research has come so far. I'd like to say it's kind of caught up with the practice that good teachers were engaged in. Um, and now here we are uh, in 2022 with a really profound and very clear evidence base behind this work. Um, so let me share a little bit of it with you. The The first um, piece I'd like to share, and I, I don't pick this, this study as a um, first because I think it's the most important. I just think it's often a place where teachers are um, have questions, which is around the connection between social emotional learning and academic outcomes for children. So there was a meta-analysis that has been done looking at over 200 different studies of social emotional learning programs in schools. And um, what they showed in that meta-analysis is there's about an 11 percentage point difference on standardized tests between students who have not had social emotional learning as part of their education and those that have. It's a pretty dramatic difference in those outcomes. And, and then you think about, well, why? Why do kids who have had this type of work do better at school in their testing and in their academics? And for me, it comes back to that sort of sense of connection with themselves and connection with each other. And if we have kids going to school where they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel a sense of belonging to each other and to their teacher, they are going to do better. They're going to be more engaged. They're going to be more curious. They're going to ask questions and ultimately have better skills to navigate learning. Um, sometimes we think about that sort of a growth mindset, um, an SEL and developing that growth mindset that enables you to do well at school are all pretty well evidenced as, as being connected. So whether we should have started with academic outcomes or not, um, it, it's a pretty profound study. You might also want to think about the evidence base for social emotional learning being around sort of behaviours or things that are seen in schools and um, we know that those who have participated in SEL programs do typically have less challenging behaviours at school. They're typically more pro-social. We also know that those students typically know how to manage stress or anxiety or depression a little bit better. And later on, I know we're going to come to a conversation around, around mental health as well. Um, but we also know that those uh, students who have had SEL um, typically you just have sort of a better attitude about themselves, about others and, and about school attitude, or you might want to think of it as being sort of a mindset. So kids do better in school academically. They also sort of thrive in the social context of schools. But then because now we've been doing this work for a long time, there's some evidence that sort of shows how those outcomes last over years, you know, when kids leave school. So um, you could think about it in terms of uh, outcomes, in terms of long term health. 
um, relationships, civic participation, and all of those are well evidenced in the literature now that is a, is a positive outcome of uh, an SEL intervention. There's a, a couple other things just kind of interesting to think about. One is this idea of belonging. Um, way before the pandemic, and I'm going to come on to that in a moment, but way before the pandemic, the Surgeon General in the US, Vivek Murthy, um, wrote an article about an epidemic of loneliness that he was seeing, not just in kids, but in society in general. This idea that as societies have grown and changed, arguably with the impact of technology, there is this real, he defined it as an epidemic of loneliness and disconnection between us as, the, as a society, as a species. And I think it's a really important thing to remember that when we ask about why SEL is so important, it's partly because society is changing so quickly and a sense of belonging in our cultures, in our societies has, has maybe slipped away a little bit. So if that's kind of all of the evidence base of, you know, what we've always known, I think what we know now, having just survived these really difficult years um, as humans, but also in education, it's been so profoundly challenging, is that we need things like SEL to really bring our communities back together in schools. We need uh, teachers and students to prioritize connection and prioritize belonging as they think about helping kids recover from any kind of learning loss that there may have been during that time. And one of our big conversations with schools that we're having at the moment is uh, how you can balance a need to get kids caught up on things they lost, uh, the things they didn't learn during the pandemic, but not doing that at the expense of prioritizing their well-being and their connection and teacher well-being. So, yeah, the, the evidence is there. And I think we're just being driven to do this work more and more by the changes in society and how hard the last few years have been. Yeah, absolutely. The evidence is there. And as you're saying, it's it's almost intuitive as well. I actually read the study that the meta-analysis that you were talking about, it was by the University of Loyola in Chicago. And the results are absolutely amazing because like you said, it it made an impact on their academic achievements, but also it showed a reduction in a lot of like emotional distresses and even things like depression and which, like you said, we'll, we'll get into in a moment. But I definitely agree. And I think personally to me, one of the most important skills through SEL is the ability to connect with other people. Um, I also feel like we're more likely to do better when we are connected to other people, we're more likely to care when we're in an environment where we feel that others care about us. And I even remember for me, when I was in school, I was a bit of a troublemaker, let's say, as a school kid. And it, it wasn't up until I went to university and I found a professor that I really connected with that everything changed. She was she was a role model to me. And um, her name is Professor Madhavi. And I wanted to do better for her. And I feel this is where things like SEL are so important both for the teacher and for the student when you're in an environment where you know your social and emotional like aspects are being given attention to um it makes such a big difference although we may not know it and i definitely agree to your point about the disconnection we are in an epidemic of loneliness and it's ironic because the more connected we are through social media, the more disconnected people actually feel because we're lacking that human connection. But yeah, it's it's a lot of interesting and, and very true points that you've made. So Yeah, and and just to speak to your your point there about the sort of the connection with an adult, one of the, the um sort of initial questions we often ask schools to collect some data on is the percentage of students that feel like they have at least one trusted adult on campus or at their school. And that is such a telling indicator of kind of the culture and the ethos and the context of a school. And um, if I'm if I'm honest, um, often schools think that the stats are going to be much higher than they end up being. Um, and it's a really helpful piece of data for schools to then track over time. And it is a, uh, I think it's a really good indicator. And I, I, like you, I, I have that same experience of, you know, a couple of key teachers in life who just made a really big difference because I connected with them. And I'm sure all of your listeners um, can probably think of that, you know, that one or that that couple of teachers that they had when they were young who just made them feel seen and heard and understood. And um, inevitably, we want to do better in their classes, right? We want to connect with them and, and learn what they've got to tell. Though. It, it really is true. It's the starting point for so much of this to be successful. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's an educator. Her name is Rita Pearson. I think she's passed now, but she once said, kids don't learn from people they don't like. And I, I feel like that's so true, you know, but yeah, yeah, I like that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, like you said, back in our days, it wasn't as um, open, I would say, to talk about mental health issues or to even realize that something like mental health is important. But it's definitely becoming more accepted that talking about mental health and kids being open about what they're feeling, their emotions, this is a normal part of our everyday lives. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence around um social and emotional learning for our mental health. So perhaps we can get into that a little bit. Maybe you can just give a few examples of like social emotional learning tools for our well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it is a, an area that the more you read and the more you explore, uh, sort of the more fascinating it, it becomes. So I'll try not to get sort of too, <laughs> too uh, drawn into like into uh, the complexity of it. But um, maybe a good starting point is is seeing uh, our emotional health as a companion to physical health. And if we just take that as a comparison point to start with, it might help us sort of understand this connection a little better. So we know, and you know, we don't need convincing this, that if we want to maintain our physical health, there are things we need to do regularly, um, part of a lifelong practice in looking after our physical health. Doctors tell us we need to eat well, we need to have our five fruit and veg a day, we need to work out, whatever it is we need to do, we, we know this. And I think it's important we see our emotional health with just the same level as importance and the same level of uh, need for ongoing nurturing. So um, we discussed right at the beginning about SEL being like a lifelong process. Emotional health needs that. It's, it's a project we're going to be working on um, for life. But just with our physical health, um, even those of us um, who are super healthy, you know, do all the things that we should, we can still sometimes get sick. We can still catch the flu. We could still hurt uh, our leg or, you know, it, it doesn't prevent us always from becoming unwell. It's the same with emotional health. We could be the most emotionally healthy people and take a lot of care of our emotions. And we still could have times in our lives where our mental health isn't great. Um, and that's true for all of us. Where social emotional learning can be part of this conversation is that SEL can give us the tools to talk about our feelings and to articulate those um, with each other. And I think about some of the stats we know about men's mental health in particular and why um, men often don't talk about their feelings and the tendency, therefore, to try um, to harm themselves is much higher rate amongst men than it is amongst women. I think it's all connected, right? We need to be better at talking about our feelings and as a society to be open to listening um, to others when they are talking about their feelings. And SEL can give us that tool. Part of the curriculum that we share with schools is really just simplicity, simply saying, here is some, here is some language to talk about the feelings we might have, even the more difficult ones. So that's sort of the one, the first part of how SDL might be part of this conversation around mental health. The second part is really around having the confidence or normalizing reaching out for help. Because if students and, and young people are learning that feelings are normal, we all have them, even the more difficult ones, then we're going to be able to reach out and ask for help without kind of that fear of stigma, the beautiful name of your podcast. Um, we're going to reach out and ask for help when we need it. And we will know when those feelings that have come to, to be with us for a while um, aren't healthy, they aren't helping us, and we need to ask for help. We'll have a better sense, sense of self-awareness about when, when we feel like it's time for some outside support. The third part around SEL um, being uh, connected to mental health is that folks who, again, have been part of SEL work are typically more successful when they're in talking therapies um, because they have that emotional vocabulary, they have an ability to express themselves, um, maybe a greater sense of self-awareness. That's not always true. But between those three kind of elements, the, the tools about talking about feelings, the appreciation that feelings are normal and that it's okay to reach out for help, and that when you're in those talking therapies or getting support, you can be more engaged in it. They're sort of part of the, the way in which SCL and mental health work together. And there's one other point, which is sort of outside of the individual, which is about society and, and our culture in general. 
my my hope and my vision for for how this work can grow is that we will have more communities that have experienced social emotional learning that are have done this work with themselves and each other so that there is a greater sense of compassion um, in the world and therefore those amongst us who do have mental health struggles from time to time will be living in a more compassionate society and that can also be part of their recovery part of getting well again is because they're surrounded by people who understand and who care and so it's about the individual for sure but when i get sort of dreamy about this work i i think you know could we get to a place where there wasn't stigma around mental health and we treated it just as importantly as we do physical health wow i love that and you're so right we we don't exist alone right we we don't exist in a vacuum we exist in a within a context of our society and so if our society is sick and you know if our society isn't thriving then how do they expect us to thrive in a society that isn't. So I, I definitely agree with you on that. I'm curious if you can give us an example um, of what social and emotional learning would look like in a classroom, just so people can understand what actually happens when social and emotional learning is being implemented. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. So uh, I think you can think about SEL in schools um, needing to be a whole community approach. And let me sort of break that down. The the place where SEL really starts in schools is for sure with that classroom practice. So we recommend to schools that they have a intentional uh, curriculum that they are teaching to kids just like they do maths or English or science. And that curriculum is teaching the skills of SEL thoughtfully and developmentally over time. So that we might start with our youngest students just learning things like naming emotions, the variety of emotions, the huge variety of emotions that, that uh, of language that we have in our in the English language and in many other languages to express how we feel and the differences between emotions. And one of the really cool things, I'm just going to share it, even though it's a small point, is that how great it can be when we can talk to kids about feeling multiple emotions at the same time. So it's pretty rare, right, as humans, that we just feel one thing. We've probably got some um, a range of feelings that we're holding at any one time. And for kids to understand that feelings come in layers and they kind of interact with each other, is it's kind of a cool experience for them. So all the curriculum materials that we um, as an organization share with schools are really hands-on, they're experiential so that kids are learning this in a way that they can really relate to. This isn't a lecture. This isn't sort of a PowerPoint presentation about emotions. It's helping them engage with it um, experientially in a real life kind of authentic way. So um, this curriculum that we're describing um, that's intentionally taught builds, builds and builds throughout a, a child's education. And the best way to think about that is sort of as a spiral. So we're touching back on these same competencies, these same ideas that I mentioned at the beginning in new and different ways as children grow and uh, mature. So that we might be talking about kind of a, a particular skill with the younger grades. Let's talk about conflict resolution there. And conflict resolution, when we're talking to, to maybe five and six and seven-year-olds, might just really focus on sharing and sharing toys at, on the playground um, or in the classroom. When we get to older kids, we're still going to talk about conflict resolution, but it's going to be much more about boundaries in relationships. We're going to talk about topics like consent. We're going to talk about relationship repair when there's been a breakdown in communication. And it's, it's the same idea, right? It's just developmentally appropriate for the age of, of, the, of the student. And that's just one example. There are many other examples of how those sort of skills build over the um, the time a child grows. So that's just the curriculum part of what this looks like in a classroom. But there's much more. We also know that SEL isn't just a program of lessons. It's also kind of an approach to teaching and learning. And by that, I mean that it's something that designs, it informs how we design our classroom uh, space, but also our curriculum how we choose what to prioritize, what books we want to read with kids, um, how we might respond to behavior challenges in the classroom can be informed by this belief in social emotional learning. So for sure, it is a curriculum, but it's also an approach to teaching and learning. 
Um, and that's why the professional development for the adults is so important in this work and helping adults grow on their own journey uh, to understand SEL. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. And I think that leads me really nicely to my next question, because it's very important, of course, to teach kids. I, I mean, I wish we had that when we were in school, right? Just imagine what a difference perhaps it would have been if we were able to share some things and concerns or our emotions, which perhaps maybe at that time we thought were not normal, but sharing it, you would see that other people in the classroom go through the same thing. So of course, without a doubt, SEL for kids and for children is super important. But I would even say, and I think this is a lot of the work that you do, that SEL would be equally important for adults and teachers and, and parents as well. So why do you think it's important to have teachers and parents also enrolled in such um, interventions or programs or just SEL in general? Yeah, it, it, it's a really critical part of what makes this work successful. Um, I mentioned a minute ago about the whole community approach and this is why it's not just something that we're offering to children, but we need to be doing this um, with, with parents, caregivers, um, with the educators, with school leaders, and so on. So I think what, it, what is probably a helpful um, thing to share first is some of the research behind this. We know that if you want to have good social-emotional outcomes for children in your community, you do need to start that work with the adults. So our whole model at the Institute is to work with teachers, educators, administrators, school leadership to um, build capacity, build confidence in doing this work with children. And that's crucial. You know, we need to have adults feeling confident in this work, knowing what it is, having done it a little bit with themselves in order for them to engage and kind of offer that space for kids to learn about their own social emotional development. So that's sort of on the teacher educator side of things. In terms of parents and caregivers, we know, you know, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but, you know, kids are only in school for a part of their lives. Parents and caregivers are obviously the primary um, kind of influence on how young people are learning and their beliefs and values about the world. So with all the schools we work with, we try to offer some parent and caregiver education, which can do a couple of things. It can help parents understand what the school is doing, this curriculum I've mentioned, this approach, and help parents understand it. Because as you and I have said already, you know, we didn't have this when we were at school. So now my, you know, my daughter's going to a school and, you know, things have definitely changed for what the experience she has compared to what I had. So parent education is critical just to even understand what SEL is. But we can also help parents with some ideas, some strategies that are informed by SEL that they may find helpful at home. Things about, um, for example, you know, talking about big feelings and big moments. When difficult things happen in our families, um, helping parents with some ways to talk about it um, and some language to have to describe feelings and to describe emotions and how part of that's modeling. Part of that is modeling for your children that, you know, we can talk about feelings in this family. Um, and part of it's also just about helping parents navigate what is right now an incredibly difficult, complicated kind of global um, world we're living in, right? There's no shortage of um, difficult things out there in the world that parents need to help their kids understand. And SEL can be part of that. And the third part of it is uh, the importance of parent caregiver SEL is that we are supporting parents in their role as parents. It's a pretty lonely job. I mean, I, I have a three-year-old, um, so I'm pretty early in my parenting career, but for many parents, they do feel isolated and that the challenges they face with their children um, are things that maybe lots of other families are experiencing as well, but we don't talk about it so much. And that the, the, the opportunity we have in doing this work, parent caregiver SEL education, is that we can bring families and parents together to kind of build that connection and share experiences and share insights. Um, some of the most powerful moments I've seen is running parent um, workshops. We've had sort of 150, 200 parents show up to our workshops and seeing parents connect and realize, oh, your, your, your kid's going through that same phase. Oh, what's worked for you? And, you know, that, that little bit of connection. And that's been the most powerful, beautiful stuff is to see that, that connection and mutual support developing. So, you know, I think that's the reason why it's so important. I guess the one sort of 
caveat to all of that is that, again, like I, I've said this before, a lot of the focus there is on the individual. It's on the responsibility of, of, of teachers and educators and parents and caregivers to do this work. But that really isn't enough if, from my perspective. I We need to be really working at the community level to make sure that there is a culture of care, that there is a community um, that's focused on the well-being of everybody and that that is a communal responsibility, not just the job of, of adults to, to do it for themselves. There's a the narrative out there, right, about self-care. You know, we should all look after yourself, you know, take take time to look after yourself. Even that like oxygen mask metaphor that, that um, you know, is just still still pervasive about, you know, if you, you want to put on your own oxygen mask first, it puts the responsibility on us as individuals. And when you think about self-care, it's often those in society who have least resources who need self-care the most and yet have the hardest time to access it. Um, and it's because the society and that we're building isn't necessarily supportive of well-being. So it's a really big point about kind of the, the, the culture of society and how we value social emotional learning and well-being. And I, I think we need to be doing both. We need to be supporting the individual and parents and teachers within a context of a culture of care. And doing that is is hard. Uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's an easy thing to achieve, but it's a, a hope that I think we should all be focused on. Once again, that's very well, very beautifully said. There's a really great book. It's called Lost Connections. And it's this journalist's journey on trying to understand like what went wrong in our society and why, you know, depression has been rising, why so many mental health issues have been rising. And uh, by the end of this book, he says he comes up with like seven, you know, things that we can do that we've lost and that we need. And one of them is exactly like you said, was community and that sense of connection. There's so much emphasis now on individuality. And if I may say so, perhaps it's a bit of an influence as well from the West. Um, but in the East, you know, communities is, was a very and still is a very integral part of a of an individual as well, being a part of a community. And I think a lot of research has shown that that is an, a protective factor for an individual, knowing that you have a community to kind of fall back into. Of course, sometimes there's the negatives where our community can be intrusive, you know, on an individual. Um, but definitely there there are protective factors as well. So I really love your um, vision for SEL to progress or, you know, to move forward, not only focusing on the individual, which of course is so important, but also with, with, the, with the community as well. Yeah. And, 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 uh, that global perspective you brought in there, I think is, is so important for us all to acknowledge that, you know, I'm a white male standing here in the UK um, my perspective on this is going to be very different to folks from different social, racial, ethnic backgrounds. And, and that's a big part of what makes this work exciting and also complicated is, is trying to find ways for this to be meaningful in all societies. Um, and, and I think just, just one point to share is that there is no one size fits all kind of answer to, to this, these dilemmas we're facing here. The research shows us that there are some best practices. And I think that's what we always try to base our work in. But there is no one program or one approach that's going to work in schools in China, just the same as it would work with schools in Cambridge or schools in Texas. You know, I pick three random places, but, you know, you, you get the point. And I think where, back to your question about the adults, is this is where we really need to engage the adults, you know. Adults are the ones that are going to know their children and their, their kids best. And so we need to work really creatively and are in partnership with teachers to figure out the program design that will reach the goals of that they have and the needs of their learners. And that's where, yeah, as I say, it's, it's complicated, but it's also really rewarding work because you're empowering teachers to figure out the answer with the best practices that we can offer them. And that's how you make a culturally relevant or culturally appropriate uh, approach to SEL. Um, that's going to vary between between schools as it as it should. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think your work on focusing on educators and parents is just so important because 
to teach kids how to manage their emotions, we need to understand how to manage our emotions and to teach them how to be open in communication. We need to be open in communication, right? And if we want the kids to do good in school or believe in themselves, I think we also need to have those kind of qualities because as you mentioned earlier, kids pick up on things, right? They're impressionable and they imitate. So if we truly want to give the best to them, we also need to be the best version of ourselves. So I think, again, very grateful for the work that you do in the field, because I think this is actually the reflection or it will be like the ripple effect of taking SEL and teaching it to educators and parents to then be passed on, I would even say, to the kids somehow. So can you give us an example maybe of a case study um, or just, you know, an, an intervention of how a school incorporated SEL over a period of time and then if there were any changes? Yeah, ha- happy to. And thankfully, we we now uh, have got um, many, many schools in our network that have really committed to this work over time. And they've seen a profound change in outcomes for kids, the culture of their school and the way that educators work. So, yeah, I, I share with you a couple of sort of elements of, of, of what we've seen. The, the first is this idea of kind of coming together around a common language or a common understanding, because in most schools, there will be pockets of great practice. You know, you might have teachers in the elementary school doing you know, some some great morning meetings or circle times. You might have folks in middle or high schools, you know, really having great um, programs around service learning and uh, supporting others or around conflict resolution or restorative justice. But most schools don't have yet a coherent sort of approach and program that builds on each, you know, each year's worth of work in ways that is just really thoughtful. So, um, you know, really good case study of school in Seattle is actually one of the very first schools that came to uh, our summer institute that I mentioned. And um, we have worked with them. They have gone on to train all of their new teachers every year so that everybody who joins the school as an educator gets the same training. And they have a consistent program. It, it meets once a week um, through in the younger grades. It's that kind of class meeting in the older grades it's a an advisory kind of form tutor time that they have and um, they've developed a, a, a really wonderful program and what they've seen there is just this this ripple effect throughout the school of kids um, responding and working with each other in the classroom in deeper more creative ways but also outside the classroom um, being sort of better peers with each other and and um, sharing this school experience in joyful and caring empathetic empathetic ways one of the other sort of examples that i'll i'll share is a part of our approach with schools which is something called the open session and i think it's a just a really beautiful practice um, that is a, a great example of when schools are doing this how things can sort of culminate it's a practice the open session is a practice that is really just for teenagers and it is a practice of students having a chance to write down problems, dilemmas, challenges, and joys that they might be experiencing. And they write those down on little cards anonymously. In this practice of the open session, then the teacher collects in all those cards and um, will read them out kind of one by one. And students who are in that class who wrote the cards are then given a chance to respond to these anonymous issues that are real because they've come from their peers, but they are, you know, they're anonymous. And part of the open session training with kids is a really thoughtful structure around responding. And we invite kids in an open session to respond just in one of three ways. They can respond by just offering support and empathy. That's kind of something like, wow, that sounds really tough. I hope it gets better for you. Example, they might choose to respond in a second way through a clarifying question saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm wondering how long this has been going on for, or I wonder what you might have already tried. So it's like wondering out loud. Again, it's anonymous, so no one's going to answer these questions, but you get a sense of, you know, this out loud wondering that deepens the social experience. And then the third way that um, students are allowed to, you know, recommended to respond is by offering kind of their personal advice or wisdom. And we know teenagers have got huge amount of wisdom and lived experience. They just need a vehicle to share it. So the open session is, is a really profound practice. There is a very important training that goes with it, because obviously when you're asking teenagers to write down 
their challenges anonymously. There's some safeguarding and child protection work that needs to happen to make sure the adults facilitating it know what to do. But um, it's a, it's an amazing practice. And the open session is created by my colleague, Janice Tobin, and she and the team have now trained teachers all over the world uh, to do this work. So a specific example, I think, of of the, the, the culmination of all these SEL skills by the time you get to be a teenager. And teenagers want real and authentic content, right? They want to learn real life issues that are important to them. And I think the open session is kind of a brilliant example of that. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing this. My heart is like, I just feel so, I don't know how to explain it. My heart is melting and it's so important. I'm very grateful for you to share this with us. I think even adults would need a session like this, like an open session, but it's so great that you guys are doing this to teenagers because like you said, it's important for them at that age, like when we're teens, you know, hormones are everywhere. Emotions are everywhere. We're learning, like there's so much going on. So it's such an important space. Like it's so important for kids and for teenagers to have that space to express themselves and know that it's okay to express. And maybe one child reads or one teenager reads out something and another person is actually going through something similar. And this is a way of like, again, increasing that social connectivity, even without knowing who the other person is. So beautiful. And that's why you're running such a brilliant podcast, because you see those observations like that. Exactly. That's how it, that's how it unfolds is, you know, that sense of empathy, um, building deep empathy. And again, you're, you're, you're bang on with the point about uh, this being important for adults. And we do, we run the open session for parents and also for teachers and actually really encourage schools to run it regularly with groups of teachers because it's part of building this sort of theme we've dug into throughout this podcast is, you know, the importance of the communal and the community care. Open session does exactly that. It really builds that ongoing and nurtures that ongoing culture of care. Absolutely. Nick, I know we're wary of time, but I was wondering if we'll have time for me to ask maybe one of your favorite stories or moments during your journey. Yeah, I'm I'm totally fine with time and I'll share one really quick story just because it, it always makes me laugh, even though I've told it so many times now. Um, this is a uh, story about a, a student who we caught up with. We had taught her when she was uh, in the younger grades and we caught up with her and she volunteered to record a little kind of video clip for us about how SEL had made a difference in in her life. And so she told us this funny story about when she was in third grade in a school in the States. And she had learned in class, in her SEL class that day, a, a tool, an SEL tool about conflict management and how you can self-advocate and stand confidently to express your needs, kind of assertiveness work. So she went home that day and, and over the, the dinner table, her mum was telling her all about this sort of conference that she'd been at the same day. Um, and this conference was all about teaching adults in the workplace about assertive communication. And her daughter just turned around to her mum and said, yeah, mum, 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 we learned that in third grade. Like that was an easy, you know, as, as if it was something that was so obvious to her as a to her as a young person. And it just goes to show, you know, this is these are skills that everyone needs. One thing we haven't even touched on, but I've mentioned it briefly there, is that these are the skills that the world of work are really looking for. These are the skills that employers want. And actually, we we each year do a little analysis of college application questions um, to see what colleges are asking of folks when they're applying. And if you look closely, they are all really questions that relate to social emotional learning about students' sense of self, who they are, their identity, and their ability to work with others to bridge difference, to manage conflict. So uh, we, I think that the data is there, but if you look further in more at kind of where students are going next in their lives to college or to work. It's also what colleges are looking for, what the world of work um, really does need. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, there's so much there. I <laughs> wish there was more time to dive deeper into so many different aspects of it, but you're absolutely right. These are skills and tools essentially that we we always need, right? And of course, starting from a young age is going to be so beneficial. So that's definitely great. But, you know, like many things in life or everything in life has its limits and barriers. Nothing is perfect. So where or what would you say, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this, 
would be some of the limitations um, or barriers of SEL? Yeah, it's it's a it's again a really lovely question for us to sort of culminate on today. I think there are a couple of areas where SEL as a field um, is still developing. One of the areas I would say is around how social emotional learning can be part of our focus on equity and inclusion in society and particularly in schools. So conventional SEL work, you know, maybe some more traditional programs that are out there typically just focus SEL on feelings and managing feelings. And that's kind of where they where they end. Our work at the Institute and lots of other great sort of other organizations that we partner with have a perspective on SEL that it must be rooted in a focus on equity. SEL must be part of breaking down systemic oppression and racism. It's got to be part of the solution of building equity. So we think about that then at a practical level being how can our SEL work also help individuals break difference, understand different perspectives that folks have lived, understand how some voices are marginalized, understand how some identities can't be visible or aren't respected equally by particular societies or cultures, and that there's work to be done in that regard. And again, I I, I need to acknowledge and name, I'm a white man in England talking about this work. My lived experience of SEL is very different to, to many others. But we need everyone to build an awareness and take responsibility for breaking down these barriers, this oppression, this racism that is pervasive in many cultures and countries around the world. So centering uh, equity in all of our SEL work is is critical and there's a lot of work to be done to be done there. I guess the one other piece I will say is I think there is a an ongoing conviction in the research around SEL that a scripted program for this work is the only way to make it successful in schools. And from our the outset at the Institute, we felt very differently that we want teachers to be creative. We want them to really be in charge of curating SEL curriculum resources that are going to meet the needs of their students that they know best and trusting teachers to do that. So I think there's some work around the research that needs to happen to really support the belief and the evidence that is growing that SEL can't be one size fits all. It can't just be a curriculum on a shelf that teachers work their way through. It's got to really be owned and lived by each school and the teachers that do the work. That makes it harder and makes it messier in lots of ways, but it's the only way from my perspective that we'll get those outcomes that we want for the next generation. Wow. I I definitely agree with your perspective. Um, There's always room for growth, but I think it's a positive one, at least in in the direction of which it is going. So I guess, Nick, that leads me to my final question with you. And where is the field of SEL going next? And what do you envision or hope to envision for its future? Um, it's, a, it's such an exciting time to be part of this field. So uh, I think one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that with this increased interest, more and more teachers um, buying in and exploring it and wanting to try these practices with their students as that kind of movement really uh, generates and grows, that there will be a, um, a normalizing of this practice in schools and in colleges and in society in general, that this will not be anything unusual, uh, that it's, it's just so widespread. It just becomes as normal as teaching math and it's, it's not um, mm. controversial um, in ways that in some parts of the world, it, it has become um, a little bit controversial sometimes that um, this work is different and unusual. So um, my hope is that we sort of can move past that. And then I think, you know, talking even more sort of broadly, when we think about how our next generation of teachers receive training or how they are um, given college preparation for this job of being an educator, of caring for kids' futures, I really hope that the work of social emotional learning is included there and given parity with the preparation Mm. that might happen for teaching a particular subject or a particular topic or a a particular issue that the sort of the how we do education is just as important as what we're teaching kids in our subject areas. Um, And that in the 
generations to come, you know, the generation of kids that have had SEL will be the teachers of the future and they will just see this as part of what they do. Um, and so I think we're at a turning point now where um, that's really going to change and uh, this will be just part of what it means to be in education um, and the evidence for it will continue to grow and back that up. I think that that's my hope. And um, one of the benefits of doing this work is that you get to see that within you know, a few years, you know, the, the, the change can happen pretty quickly. And it's just a joy to be part of. Wow. I absolutely love that. Nick, this has truly been such a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for this interesting, touching even, but also very in- insightful conversation and your passion with your work really, really shines through. So I'm very excited to see more of your work and contribution to the field of SEL and of course, for it to uh, grow in more schools across the globe, which is exactly what you're doing. Yeah, you bet. And thank you so much for the work you're doing to um, spread these conversations. And um, I likewise feel really moved by this this movement you're creating. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you like this episode, please do leave a review on Apple Podcast or your favorite hosting site. I'll also be linking Nick's profile. I will also be linking Nick's profile and the SEL Institute to this description box below for anyone interested to check it out further. I highly do recommend you do so. Thank you and we'll catch you in the next episode.